Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Which one are we looking at, by the way? Oh, the uh, so that is the graph I was given. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. And this is the data. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's do this. Um. Do you accept Darwin's theory of biological evolution? Partly. I accept that things evolve to some degree. Can a Christian accept Darwin's theory of biological evolution? I do know some Christians who have. Yeah, I don't think it's an issue of salvation. Can you describe to me Darwin's theory of biological evolution? Life plus trial and error plus time equals evolution. That we evolve from species to species or that, you know, I mean, particularly it's the the little finch birds that have the beak and, you know, it's changing with over passage of time that he observes in the Galapagos Islands. I don't know that I can. Frogs to, to I mean, animals, little, you know. Little animals to big animals? Yeah, little animals to big animals. I've not really uh, studied it. Dinosaurs are in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. One of those things that is often heard by Sunday school teachers and the like with good intentions but narrow vision or bad ideas is that if evolution is true in the sense that Charles Darwin believed it was, 
then the gospel or the Bible must be false or untrustworthy, something along those lines. That claim is, in fact, false. I feel very confident saying that. And that is what I'm arguing for today with the help of my friend Adrian Wired. We're going to hear from him how he went from ardent young earth creationist to theistic evolutionist. But before that, we're going to hear from Amy, another friend of mine, a Christian who has some issues with Darwin's theory as she understands it. And while I'm speaking with Adrian, I'm going to try and address all of Amy's questions. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to circle back with Amy and see if what she heard between Adrian and I moved the needle at all for her. So it's going to go Amy, Adrian, Amy, and then we'll be done. But there's a legitimate question that might be asked. Does it matter whether or not Christians accept evolution? Here's a little bit of research done by the Barna Group, a Christian-focused research firm in Southern California. Some of the biggest reasons that young people feel disconnected from the church or from their Christian faith is a tension that they feel between Christianity and science. 35% of young people say Christians are too confident they know all the answers. Three in 10 young adults with a Christian background feel that churches are out of step with the scientific world we live in. 25% embrace the perception that Christianity is anti-science, and 23% say they've been turned off by the creation versus evolution debate. Barna's research shows that many science-minded young Christians are struggling to find ways of staying faithful to their beliefs and to their professional calling in science-related industries. In other words, young people are leaving the church in large numbers, and scientific issues are one of the biggest factors in that exodus. Now, this saddens me because I think God is very much real, and to have people lose contact with God unnecessarily is a major tragedy. And secondly, it's a bummer because, as I said before, the antipathy is a false one. Are there some difficult questions as we reconcile our faith to the current scientific consensus of the day? Of course there are. But this binary, this versus, creation versus evolution, we can't have both. That is simply, simply false. To kick things off, here is my conversation with Amy, a bit of a Darwinian skeptic. A lot of people, when you talk about astronomy and the vastness of the universe, people either get really excited or really freaked out. Hmm. And I've always gotten really excited by that. Because, oh, yeah, I totally get freaked out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it, it makes sense. But to me, like the mysteriousness of our existence is, is totally exciting and points to the divine to, in, hmm. in a way because I think there's just so much that we don't know and that that is comforting to me in a way. It's comforting to me how much we can know as well um, because there's so much intricacy and, and beauty in the scientific aspects of life and the universe. But I think that that balance between the, mis the mystery and the tension is really powerful to me personally. More or less, I was raised to be a young earth creationist. I remember being taught that the earth was only 6,000 years old, that you know God created the earth in seven literal days. Any kind of acceptance of Darwin and his thoughts, um, even, I think, adaptation that's observable would have been kind of a dangerous thing to, to be 
considering. Did you get a sense that it was either that or the highway? Or was it? A, was there a sense that, no, some Christians disagree on this? I think around high school was the first time the idea was introduced to me that it was possible to to be an evolutionist and to be a Christian. Um, was that introduced by Christians? Yeah, actually. Okay. The general message was like, we obviously don't believe this, but it's possible that someone hmm. could be a Christian and be saved and believe yeah. this as well. So I definitely grew up suspicious of, yeah. of the theory of evolution. My understanding is that Darwin um, did a lot of studies on like bird populations and observed adaptation of the species. And from that, he extrapolated a theory of natural selection, which means that the sur- essentially the survival of the fittest, that throughout history, weaker samples of species died off and the stronger survived. And so what we have today is basically the strongest of genetics that we have to offer. Do you have any problems with the way you just stated it, or does that Um, seem right to you? I know a lot of Christians sort of loop that in with like the Big Bang and the age of the earth and all that kind of stuff, but my understanding is that Darwinistic evolution is primarily about survival of the fittest. It's about biology. Yeah, biology, Yeah. 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 A problematic part of that, the whole idea of the survival of the fittest is that then it becomes easy to see differences within the same species as evidence of being more highly evolved or less evolved. It can lead to valuing certain traits or certain types of people or animals or primarily my concern is with people though above other types of people. It says like, well, obviously everyone is on the spectrum of evolution is evolving continually, you know, eugenics was kind of born out of this thinking too. The idea of like humans descending from apes, it's it's really hard to not go to those ethical places of sort of like mm. making judgment calls about, well, these types of humans are closer to the apes. These types of humans are further from the apes. What about people descending from apes, as you say it, or I'll, I'll call yeah. it common descent. Yeah. What about that is worrisome to you? Well... I I do strongly believe in a creator God. And when the Bible talks about God creating man in his own image, um, I think that there's an inherent value to mankind in that description. I think the idea of a creator inherently brings a lot of value to all of creation, but specifically to human beings, that, yeah, that they were created as humans. There's a difference between if... God created humans sort of in an instant. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you had a camera going, there would yeah. be Adam. Yeah. Is different than if humans emerged. Yeah. What's the difference? I think the, the Darwinian sort of take on it is that, like, humans are basically just another kind of animal, <laughs> mm-hmm. in a sense, whereas... I do think there's a difference between humans and animals, yep. specifically souls, specifically the kind of sentience and, and self-reflection that humans have. Yeah. I don't, I don't consciousness, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And so I think that is a hard thing for me to imagine having sprung out of evolution because if it had, I wonder why like more species don't have easily observable evidence of that. Great question. Yeah. Like, what do you believe now, if you had to explain it, about Darwinism and human origins and all that? I think Darwinism is really fascinating and that there are aspects of it that are observable. 
and that I think it's an incomplete view. And I think even modern evolutionists would agree with that, that Darwinism is not an accurate descriptor for the current theories of evolution that exist, too. I feel like there should be more evidence of it available. And transitionary species, like the kinds of microorganisms that we all emerged from Mm -hmm. and things like that, you know, I think... I haven't done enough study on it, I'm sure, but I I haven't found anything that's made me be like, well, this is obviously irrefutable. Is it possible that our education as creationists, uh, to be skeptical of that evidence, was so successful that the evidence totally does exist and we just have either not been exposed to it or we have not even wanted to try to be exposed to it, uh, and we've just sort of kept that attitude of skepticism? Yeah, I think that's possible. I'm sure there there is a position of skepticism that I was taught to have that I'm still holding on to to some degree. Mm -hmm. But I I think I also have learned the older I get that like a lot of science is is just itself evolving and that people can be completely certain of something one generation and the next generation their understanding changes. Like even people's understanding of the structure of atoms was different 60 years ago than it is today. So let's jump in with Adrian Wired, who was an early Microsoft developer. He was actually project manager for Microsoft Word 1.0, and since leaving Microsoft many years ago, has dedicated much of his life to the intersection of science and faith. But he wasn't always so confident that the two could be harmoniously pursued. And in fact, his story of eventually accepting biological evolution did not start at all with evolution, but rather it started with questions about the age of the universe. So let's talk about your life. You were born what year in England? 1965, in Reading, west of London. And you were raised Christian? Yes, indeed. Tell us about the church that you attended when you were growing up. Was a actually a Baptist church. When I say Baptist over in this country, we tend to think of Southern Baptist and far less uh, dynamic and, and uh, bouncy than that. It was a straightforward, think of a evangelical Protestant church, and you, you have a fairly good sense of what it was. It's very conservative. They were very cautious about the music they played. What was the view of the Bible espoused by that church? A very high view of the authority of the Bible. Inerrancy was just assumed. The interpretation of the Bible is something that could be done by ordinary people. The plain meaning of Scripture is just there on the page. Uh, You don't need to study. You don't need to understand the original languages. It's just there, and, and off you go. So Bible says six days. It was created in six days. That would be the assumption. I had a little bit of a skeptical um, aptitude, just an orientation to to everything. So one day uh, when we had uh, some guest speakers come to church and they showed how using just the methods of science, you can show that the Bible is true, this impressed me greatly. And uh, that was something I thought I could buy into. And I did then take that out uh, and share that with some some friends of mine. Was there any sense in that church setting that, well, here's one way to think about the Bible, literally scientifically accurate, 
But there are other ways, and those people are Christians too. Or was it, no, it's, it's this way or the highway? There was no questioning it. That if you rejected six-day creation, you were rejecting the Bible whole cloth. Yes, I, you know, I've gone back to look at this recently, and the assumption was that that interpretation was not one of many. It was the sound view, and, and it's a shame that other people have yet to come around to that view. That was the point of evangelism, was to explain to people how we lucky few had, had the right understanding. What do you think the motivations were? I mean, was there some good motivation some narrow-mindedness. How do you think about the leaders of that church coming to that view or where they were situated in sort of the history of Christianity? Well, it's hard to generalize so many people, but if I, and for all I know, there were some bad actors in there. And we will certainly meet some, as I tell the story, uh, who were not from my church, but certainly came to my church and who were either peddling fabrications or or misinformed greatly. But my confident assumption is that this was simply an established culture. There wasn't much self-doubt going on. There was a great deal of confidence, not much self-reflection. When you were evangelizing people to creation science, which you said you did some, what tools did you use to try and convince people of young earth creationism? I'm still very young. I must have been no more than about early teens at, at the latest. But I was aware of contemporary science and Big Bang uh, cosmology and uh, evolution as a idea that was taught, certainly taught to me in, in at that age. And I was aware there was a tension there, uh, but not hadn't not looked into it. And then we had the speaker come to the church that showed a, uh, a very impressive solution to a, a very thorny problem. If you take the Bible, as we did in this church, to be readable in, in plain English with uh, – and so you get to a, a, a young earth. You get to a seven-day creation. And even though it's not in the Bible, there are you – know, if you do the accounting, if you add up the ages of the people described in the Bible and the lineages, you get to about 6,000 years total, all the way back to Adam. But if the speed of light is the speed it is that we measure today – then there wasn't enough time for the light to get from the furthest stars we see to us. This isn't. This is something I realized in college all by myself. Oh, really? I just was walking out one night and I was like, I think I've heard that some of these stars are millions or billions of light years away. That means that they would never have existed. Yeah, and it would just be photons coming, as it were, from nothing. Right. which felt kind of deceptive to me. You're left with very difficult choices. I mean, and also the 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 size, the distance of the stars is something that can be verified numerous ways. When science uh, the sciences are confidence in things, it, it often comes from taking multiple approaches and getting the same answer from different ways. It's a bit like triangulation. Yes, and the more ways, the more confidence. So there was a high confidence that this uh, these stars were far away. So, you, But this got, guy had an elegant solution. He had an elegant solution because the idea that the light was created on the way just seems like, you know, that's cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, deceptive, as you say, perhaps. Yeah, that's probably worse. But working from, with your really idealized science hat on you've got data here from multiple sources as a christian you've got the idea that you know the confidence that stars are far away 
you know, more than 6,000 years away. And you have the Bible, which tells us that the universe is only 6,000 years old. How do you reconcile these? There must be a solution. And so he went looking. And he looked at the historical uh, measurements for the speed of light. The speed of light is a tricky thing to measure. It's about 300,000 kilometers per second. You know, measuring something that fast is not easy. And in, in fact, there are error bars. And every time you do that, there are going to be some, there's some room for error. And uh, it turns out if you, you know, look through history, the various people who've measured the speed of light, you don't see a distribution across the current value. What you see is an increase in values. This is astonishing because the speed of light is supposed to be constant. Nevertheless, he sees in the data an increase. And more than that, if you take the data and you plot it on a curve, what you find is that the speed of light increases geometrically as you go back in time and it reaches near infinity at a period in time which is about 4000 BC. We've actually used Bible data and a statistical analysis of, of measurements of the speed of light to actually derive in, a, in, a, in an independent manner the age of the, of the cosmos at 4000 BC, 6000 total. I mean, you're, the way you're saying it to me right now, that sounds like a pretty good explanation. I think even then I thought it was, you know, there's obviously a punchline coming here. <laughs> but even then I thought it was a little bit lucky that the speed of light became constant just at the point when we started to be able to measure it accurately. <laughs> mm, yeah. Isn't that it's a bit of a red flag there? But nevertheless, that's the way the curve yeah. goes. And it is a independent, you know, extra biblical method of uh, showing that the universe is, is 6,000 years old. And it obviously adds immensely to the credibility of the biblical record. So armed with that, I thought, okay, that's good enough. That, that, that I, I will take out to the... Uh, secular world, and I did so. So you brought these graphs with you? Yes. Which one are we looking at, by the way? Oh, the, uh, so that is the graph I was given. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And this is the data. <laughs> okay, so let's do this. Um, okay, Adrian, so I have these two sheets of paper before me. One of them is a very simple... The simple one is just like a single line shooting down the y-axis and then evening out on the x-axis. Is that right? Yes. looks like a straight sort of geometric uh, progression up to infinity at about 4,000 years ago. This is supposed to be the, the speed of light over time? Is that what it is? Yeah. This was a graph that was shown to me and, and impressed me immensely. Okay. And then this other one, not to be unfair to the first graph, the other one looks more like science <laughs> and it has way more... It's got all these things on it, and I don't know how to read it. What is, what's going on here? It's just like a big clump of lines and bars between points and etc. Well, it is a, a more faithful representation of the data that was then interpreted to be this smooth curve. Okay, so this is also the speed of light. These are, uh, this is the data that led to that curve. I was presented just the, the final interpretation, which is this smooth curve, which has no error bars whatsoever. Right. And an error bar is what basically like when you do a survey, you say, you know, this could be wrong by up to 3% in either direction because of the sample size or something like that. Yes, yes. When you make any measurement, if you're 
lucky, you get a definitive result to lots of decimal places, but typically you don't. And then you, uh, rather than misrepresent the data you've got, you add uh, plus minus uh, values. Yeah, so it, it is, it's an extrapolation. It's just an example. You know, we can, there's no reason not to be charitable. Given noisy data, you can fit nice curves to them within the error bars. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how misleading is that? It, in, in some ways, it's not misleading at all. That, that nice, smooth curve fits. But it is not the only curve which fits. And it is certainly the curve which takes the very top of every error bar the further back you go and the very bottom of every error bar the closer you go. Uh, and actually, it cherry picks those beyond that. I beyond mean, that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an example of, of how you can uh, fit the data to your expectations because the, I mean, the real result of that smooth curve punchline is that the speed of light used to be infinitely fast at the creation moment, which is, you know, 4000 BC. And if that is uh, derived from data objectively, then that is a massively important result. And adds yeah. credibility to the young Earth creationist account that you know would put them on the map. It did put them on the map, and it put me in a lot of trouble personally. <laughs> yeah, which we're going to hear about. So, okay, what's the upshot of these two pieces of paper that I've just looked at? Well, the the upshot is be cautious about numbers <laughs> and uh, the interpretation of statistical phenomenon. You know, it, it is possible to fabricate things. It is also possible to be self-deceived, perhaps with the best intentions in the world. Uh, you can uh, be blinded to uh, interpreting error bars when they go the wrong way. What's the consensus view on this now? Well, th- this has been a live proposal with, from with the Young Earth Creationist Research Community since the 80s. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it has not been fruitful. So let's go back to your days of trying to convince your friends of this view of the world. How would one of those conversations go? I'm afraid I only did it really a couple of times, and it was a real clangor, <laughs> which sort of uh, put an end to it. I actually took the the graph uh, that was, a in my mind, a, a credible, independent verification of the Bible to the father of a friend of mine who was a research uh, physicist. And it was a very short meeting. Okay, so this, this is what I want to know. So <laughs> you, you, you're what, 15, 16? No, younger than that. Yep, Probably younger than that. 13. Yeah. Okay, 13. You go to this practicing physics researcher mm-hmm. and you show him this very nice graph. Going, you know, It goes to infinity at yes. 4,000 BC. Yeah. What what does he say? Well, I, he was quite kind, but uh, he 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 said that's a fabrication. And and do you remember how he explained that to you? Well, yeah, we dug out some of the data points, and he gave me a little lesson in 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 statistics and in, in error bars and and how measurements you need to rank the confidence of the measurements. And I I then went home and looked up more of this and took his view that this was not a reliable graph. The data we looked at then and there 
was that the, the current value for C, the speed of light, is roughly 300,000 kilometers per second. And the earliest value he had, it was back in the 1600s, and that was like 302,000 kilometers per second. Hmm. And so how you can expect to get from that to infinity, 4,000, he said, is just not happening. You basically have to assume an exponential acceleration the further back you go, but there's no reason to assume that. Even I could see is going to be pushing it. Did you feel ashamed? Did you feel embarrassed? How did, what did this conversation make you feel? I was desperately embarrassed because I had gone in with uh, this sort of high and mighty, very self-righteous confidence. So there's a moment in your history, isn't there, where you feel yourself a bit between two worlds? Definitely. Describe that moment. I think that the the, the time with uh, when I walked uh, walking home from from my friend's father, you know, that was that was a realization that I was no longer part and parcel of either my church community, at least you know the people from the pulpit, the visiting speaker. I was not that he was not my crew anymore. <laughs> he had been too slippery with the data. He had been too ideological in his graph making. Yeah, and beyond that, the people I trusted to be gatekeepers at my church, the people who I knew, this was a guest speaker, right. you know, the people who I knew had either been fooled or... Or uh, acting in bad faith. Or acting in bad faith. You yeah. know, and this was... So, yeah, I, I definitely... I left... Uh, I was now... Uh, aloof's the wrong word, uh, if you take it with a pejorative sense. I was now a free agent more than I had been before. But of course, I wasn't plumped down in the atheistic scientific world either. Right. I, I can't say, I, I respected the, the harsh critique I'd received, but <laughs> I didn't suddenly want to be a nuclear scientist like this guy. It was yeah. like, he was, he was, didn't make me feel good. <laughs> mm. What is that Augustine quote about, what he has about, you know, if a, if a scientist disagrees with your biblical interpretation. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah, I actually, I think I have it handy. And he says, now it's a disgraceful and dangerous thing for a non-believer to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. That would be me. And we should take all means to prevent such embarrassing situations in which people show up vast ignorance in a Christian and laugh it to scorn. And that's what happened. He laughed at me. Mm. And I never forgot it. The caution there is is to study, is, is to get the facts straight, and not assume that because you are a, a Christian, a believer, but that doesn't necessarily mean your views on all topics are, are suddenly uh, superior. Yeah, just because you're a Christian does not mean you're a better theoretical physicist than the average theoretical physicist. Especially as a 13-year-old boy, yes. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Very embarrassing situation. You go home, you look at the data, you go, he was right, I was wrong, you're still a teenager. What starts to shift in your mind after this moment? Well, it's, you know, it's troubling on a number of levels. I mean, I, uh, other than the, just the personal embarrassment, I, I, I definitely went back to my mode of, uh, of just uh, keeping my thoughts to myself. But also I had now reason to distrust what was being told to me from the pulpit. And I think that has never quite left me. You know, it was a, I can't say that I regret it, but it was a scarring of a kind, but for the good in the long run. 
but it was a uh, a reminder of the fallibility of humans and a caution as to how advocacy and enthusiasm can even for the best possible reasons can get you into trouble so uh, th- this difficult episode with this physicist when i was in my teens was not enough to kill my faith by by a long shot it just made right. me very cautious about um, scientific arguments for the bible and i continued to have a very skeptical view of the power of Darwinian evolution. If you enjoy this podcast or enjoy other podcasting work that I've done in the past, if you think that it is a valuable addition to your life and the lives of your community, would you consider becoming a patron? It starts at only $5 a month and it includes two bonus episodes for patrons only every single month. Those are episodes that do not play anywhere else, and they're really fun. It's quite a variety of topics. I really free myself up to talk with anybody interesting about any interesting question. Patrons also will be able to submit questions and topics for future episodes like that and future Q&A episodes. And of course, you get access to all the previous patron conversations that I've already had and posted on that platform. Here are a couple clips in kind of no particular order of little bits of those conversations. So the hiddenness of God is an assertion of God's otherness, that God is this fundamentally, there's something about God that is other to us that like we can't just figure out by using our natural reasoning or our natural observations or our, it's, it's not something that we can intuit from our experience. He values loyalty more than anything, and loyalty is pretty amoral. The guy has no moral fiber to speak of as as far as looking at his life's record. I mean, this goes back decades. Partly as a result of having had, having had such like a tortured, that's way too strong a word, but sort of a, a humorously classical version of the evangelical experience of like accepting Christ 20 times as a child. And, and, and just finally, like in college getting to the point where I'm like, man, if it's about like saying a prayer a certain way, like I've, I've said the prayer. I'm in at this point. I'm I'm pretty in. Um, my passport has been stamped stamped. many times. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like a 16 year old fan really does want to sleep with a front man and they lie about their age. Those things happen. Those happen in the music industry. I've seen it happen and I'm not making an attempt to victim blame or anything. It's a part of this weird part of music culture that unlike TV, I can watch Brad Pitt on a movie, but I'm not in a situation where Brad Pitt could ever like call me out of a crowd backstage. To sign up for the Patreon, go to youhavepermissionpod.com. Thanks so much. So, Adrian, let's start by defining our terms here. What exactly is biological evolution? In broad terms, it's the idea that biology has changed over time. And these days, that comes with an extra assumption, which people have a great deal of confidence in, that the processes which have brought about that change that we observe today are the same processes processes that have been in play all the way back. But the confidence that you find today in the biological sciences 
really can be traced to our uh, good old nemesis and friend uh, Charles Darwin. Uh, until that point, it was a broad, you know, guess, but uh, he gave a general approach to uh, evolutionary history that has stuck with us and uh, and continues to be uh, verified today. So you you have this deceptively simple sentence that what we see today in biology is what has been going on all along, basically. So let's unpack that a little bit, meaning it's not like in the past there were all these weird supernatural moments that created all these species, but rather the same type of change that we can observe today is the kind of change that has always been around that has produced all of this variety of life. Well, yeah, if you, if you look back, if you do trust that we can see back in time, and there are, there are many ways to gain confidence that we can do that. The changes you see over large timescales are catastrophically huge. I mean, mm. they're, they're immense. It's not, it's not just like we see with uh, the breeding of, of pets, for example. I mean, obviously you see massively, whole new classes of, of animals. And yeah. you would imagine that to get a big change, you need sort of a big stick, some, some sort of uh, mechanism that gives you a big change. And uh, it, it turns out that the you know the the live proposition is that the changes that we see today you know, across t- small timescales, coupled with the complexity that is underlying biology today, meaning genetics, that you couple uh, you add all that together, and you do have what you need to account for the development of all the complexity we see today. But it reaches a bit of a hard stop when you come to the very beginning of life where you no longer have uh, evolutionary mechanisms. If you go back to the earliest time when you don't have replication and inheritance of traits, then you no longer have evolution as a mechanism to deploy. So biological evolution starts once there is biology or life, living matter, as opposed to rocks and lava. Right, right. right. And so you you have to do, you have to get started with, with chemistry somehow. And that's been uh, in our research project for a very long time. But as is often the case with science, there are there are people who work at something, they chip away at it and get nowhere, 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 nowhere. But we're actually seeing some things on the horizon now, which are very exciting indeed. And if I were a betting person, I would totally put my money on that, that we are going to find, if not the pathway, but a number of credible candidate pathways, how we get to the beginning of life. From chemistry to biological life. Yeah, yeah. In the next, you know, 20 years, let's say. So, okay, let's let's go back to this moment. Now you're in your teens, maybe early 20s, this period, after the embarrassment, before serious university and post-university study. So how would you have described biological evolution at that point? What did you think it meant? Throughout my schooling, evolutionary biology and Darwinian evolution was explained to me in, in very sort of standard terms, which for whatever reason, I did not find convincing. Perhaps it was just defensiveness. I just felt like there was an atheistic overlay to it. Like anybody who doesn't believe this is is silly and the kind of silly person I'm talking about are religious people. Yeah, sort of some scorn. There was some scorn there, yes. But very, very much later, I actually read The Origin of Species. And towards the end, he, he, he explains that this has been one long argument. And it, but it can be broken down into some very basic principles. And I really wish it had been explained that way to me before. For example, if 
you I imagine you have animals like we have today, which are born to parents and they inherit traits, features from their parents. That's not hard to accept. That's what we see. Darwin didn't know anything about genes. He he uh, just knew there were inherited traits, and you see that by the selective breeding of pigeons or right. or cats or whatever. But if you imagine ev- at every step, you remove the silliest ideas, the most deleterious thing, the things, obviously, the things that not only the things that are stillborn, but what if you simply remove the bottommost few, or or there's some differential they they reproduce less without any conscious creation of of novel new features by simply removing the bottom layer over very, very long periods of time, the average goodness, so to speak, the average you know fitness to the particular environment goes up. And because we're not talking about a particular history of any particular species, we're just talking about in principle – there's no distinction between micro and macro evolution, the concepts which I was very familiar with at the time. And so given the, that broad understanding of, of how traits uh, might change over time, assuming you have just randomized variation, then you could see uh, how over time things would get more fit to their environment. And there's no particular end to that. And so the question is, does that principle, which is really at that level, it's not science even it's just a sort of a logical it's a thought experiment in logic can that be found in the biological record and once we end up with a contemporary understanding of the way genes work and particularly kinds of genes if you start looking for these mechanisms you find them and it was at that point that i began to realize there was no reason to to doubt the effectiveness of that uh at what point do you start to seriously consider biological evolution as possibly being true? It was through reading this this literature uh, put out by the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences. And I'm happy to say it stemmed from just a richer understanding of the way biology works. There are a number of understandings that, that help add credibility to the evolutionary account. The principal one is, is Hox genes. Uh, homeobox genes. These have been understood for many, many decades now. But they show that in organisms that we you know, think of now, like cats and dogs and people, evolution doesn't occur by just random mutation of particular uh, nucleotides in DNA uh, because DNA doesn't operate on a sort of atom-by-atom atom basis. For example, the genes that direct the development of a embryo there isn't like uh if, if you want to, want to develop a, a two-legged creature there aren't two sets of genes one for each leg and if you want a millipede there aren't um you know thousands of copies of genes for a thousand legs or i see however many however many your millipede has there are genes that basically include a whole body plan or something like that well they, they direct parts of the body plan okay so in order to change from a uh, creature that has four legs to one that has six legs you perhaps need just a single mutation so okay you're starting to change your view on biological evolution. But as you said, you have not joined the atheist camp. You've remained a Christian throughout this process. So how did the way you understood the Bible change as this is changing for you scientifically? I actually had, even even as a young churchgoer memorizing my scripture, 
I had a little bit of a, a skepticism. Maybe some of this is figurative. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, like those parts in the Old Testament where it says, and God said, I was, I was always wondered, okay, who was around to write that down? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, so actually the, the horror of, of retreating from this very strong confidence in the Bible wasn't that great because I was just going back to my previous um, respectful but slightly cautious uh, view of the Bible. So I'm not sure if that's normal or not, but that's, that was my experience. Did the Bible end up more rich for you after this? Like, how did you read Genesis after all this shifting took place? It's very hard for me to go back and put myself right in those shoes again. But despite the environment I was in, which held this literal inerrant view, even those moments when I totally agreed with that, I could see the value of the poetry. I could see how this was figurative and useful uh, when taken as figurative. So what happened with me is there was just a, a shift in emphasis. So a few years ago, you switched churches here in Seattle. And I still to this day don't know how it happened. But uh, So I just returned from Oxford. I'd, I'd done a Master of Studies in Science and Religion at, at the University of Oxford. And uh, somehow someone knew that. So within a few weeks of me visiting this church, someone pulled me aside and said there's a committee being formed that uh, the, the senior pastor is putting a committee together to advise him on a new sermon series he's doing on on Genesis. And I was a little worried about that because <laughs> this, is a, this is a tricky area. We should note it's an evangelical church. It's an evangelical so church. there's, you know, you're not sure what you're going to get there. So I did agree to join this committee. And to this day, I'm really surprised by what happened. The, the senior pastor, uh, he said, I'm called upon to speak about this section of scripture frequently. And as you may know, I have gone with a pretty straightforward, uh, non-dogmatic uh, take reading of scripture. Like, you know, but like in absence of a heap of evidence, might as well read it on its face. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, he, he, he wasn't a, uh, a faith test, for example. Like if you, if you took, if you didn't take it literally, then that's fine with him. But uh, traditionally, yeah. that's what he did. And he essentially then said, I have come to suspect I may not know what I'm talking about. You know, which is something you really... <laughs> yeah, that's a refreshing. Yeah. A, a very refreshing. Uh, and he said, I, I've, this is, I want you to give me some advice. And this is a pretty large crew. It must have been seven people. So now the fear is that... Uh, okay, the so other six the, are going to yeah. like, take him back to that. But it turns out we all gave him basically the same story. Huh. And so it was a an interesting, <laughs> very long uh, bookend to uh, what happened earlier, where I was basically set adrift from a community. I, I realized I was actually shoulder to shoulder with people who, mm. you know, with some caution, saw things roughly how I did. What was the story that the, all seven of you told? How would you summarize that? That the principal value of scripture is uh, is as theology and an advocacy for the broader Christian story, and that if you take a fair reading of contemporary biology and cosmology, there is no conflict with the broader Christian cosmology and story. And as to Genesis specifically, it's metaphor. Uh, it's spiritual truth. It, it is spiritual truth. And if you do not place 
that spiritual truths at the center of your accounting, you are missing out. Okay, so you're making a, a, a stronger claim here. You're making a claim that actually to read Genesis primarily scientifically is to misunderstand Genesis. Yes. Or to sell it short. Yes, it's it's to you've, – you've wasted breath on that could have been more profitably spent elsewhere. Now, what you can't do is say that people who heard this from the very earliest days didn't take it as proto-science. Sure. Right? They, 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 I'm sure as parents told this story to their kids, the kids went away thinking – Young Earth, so to speak. I mean, not sure, well, they had no reason not to think that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to think that the hearers, the, the first many, many, many generations of hearers of this account took that to be anything like the way creation science teaches it now, that's, that's just – they didn't have ears that heard that way. Yeah, so, so they would have taken it on its literal sense, but they wouldn't have taken it the way that Young Earthers today take its literal sense in the context of modern science. Yes. Because they didn't have the context of modern science. Yes, and it wasn't seen as as, as a tool in opposition, as an evangelical tool. Right. To actually talk to your friends, physicists, <laughs> father, right. and, and bring them into the fold. And as early as the fourth century, when maybe it did start to become, oh, maybe this is, there are some people doing something that we might call kind of science, then Augustine's like, okay, look, if they're doing science, like, don't be a fool. Like, engage with them on the level of the science. Right, right. Let's address some of the particular concerns that Amy, or the first person we heard from, mentioned in her interview the biggest problem she seemed to have is that there is maybe a moral issue if we assume that progress is a fundamental aspect of evolution that it's very simple for someone to say higher forms are better than lower forms they're not just different we see this in social darwinism in the 20th century we know that hitler read a lot of that stuff we know that that was used to justify slavery in the united states you know measuring cranial size and who's closer to the apes and you know all of this stuff so how would you respond to that worry uh that that's a worry that that hopefully we're past now i'm not aware of any sort of working biologist who would talk about progress in that sense um, so what would they mean then if they if it's not progress what is it just differentiation or what i read recently that we sometimes depict evolution as a tree, a tree of life, you know, that starts at the bottom and goes up. And then, you know, humans and primates are in the highest branches of the tree. And there's a sense in which higher, better. But I read that a better pictorial representation would be more like a spiral. You have just this branch shoots off north and this one shoots off south and this one east and west. And then everything just kind of goes sort of circular and you could show, okay, well, this sliver of the pie chart is mammals and then this smaller sliver later on is hominids and whatever. But it's but it's all more like a pie. It's not – there's no up or down. There's just simply different directions of complexity, different kinds of body plans or whatever develop. And it's wrong to think of it as a tree. 
Does that sound right? That's, that's a great way of depicting it. There are numerous ways. And the people are consciously trying to find different ways of depicting evolutionary time because it's notoriously uh, challenging to depict without adding some uh, mistaken value to it. Uh, as you say, in, uh, it was historically thought of as a tree. Now, a tree is good because things have branched. The branching part is helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, as you, and you, you certainly do go back in time um, and there were fewer branches. But it gives the impression that higher is better. And that's not necessarily the case. So they, a move that happened uh, a while ago was to more of a bush. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, bush, yeah. so, yeah, you can't actually find there's no particularly privileged higher, higher position. But the, the idea that of tracking genuine progress and things being better is just, just frowned upon within evolutionary biology because what is better for a particular environment is fine until that environment changes. What, what are your measures of, of success? For example, if we, have, <laughs> if we get hit by a big meteor, then it turns out the termites will have it right. Right. Um, I was just thinking about the dinosaurs. I mean, the dinosaurs were apex predators for how many million years? More than 100 million. Yeah. yeah. And, and then – so and, and humans have been apex predators for less than 1 million years. And you're making a bit of a judgment there that eating is is the is what, well, sure. what counts as good. Yeah, <laughs> sure, right. But even even if you want to say apex predator or whatever, well, the dinosaurs had a 100 times longer run than we've had thus far. But then there's a meteor, and then all of a sudden they're not very fit to survive. Right. And so even then, we it just jumbles our kind of concepts of this stuff. One thing though that I think that Amy was hitting on, you know, everybody knows this this picture of like a little ape and then it gets a little bigger and a little taller and then it looks like the Neanderthal. And then we have a modern human looks like the David or whatever. Mm -hmm. That picture is actually not necessarily accurate, right? It's not the, the phrase she used is from the apes, but it's not true that humans evolved from chimpanzees or gorillas. That's not what happened, right? What, what did happen? Very true. Can't have uh evolved from your brothers and sisters and so these are our, our cousins at least hmm. so yeah we share we share a common ancestor a general principle within evolution per se is we everyone shares common ancestors all the way back now you can selectively choose ones that you don't like <laughs> it turns out um that we have a common ancestor which is shorter that has that is stockier um that morphologically looks recognizable to us uh, uh, as, as contemporary apes. But there's no particular reason you need to stop there. We share genes with yeast and bananas. So. Right. We have <laughs> uh, uh, early amphibians are also our common ancestor that's, with that's apes. That's really true, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of arbitrary to go, well, it's the ape one that matters. And if these people look more like apes, you know, or something like that, it's that's just kind of like a way to be racist. It is. I mean, now, this is a very tricky one because – Perhaps if we have children in play, we can forgive that. But that's a conscious to choose skin color is something you are imposing. To say that uh, you know, certain uh, humans now are more closely related to chimpanzees because of skin pigmentation, that there is no biology that supports that. Um, right. But you could forgive a child for making that incorrect assumption. Oh, right. Like skin color does not correlate to, for instance, shared genetic material. Exactly right. Yeah. Or you could say testicle size. I mean, you could really pick anything, but skin color is just, we see it. 
So it's an easy choice. Yeah. Or nose shape or something like that. Yeah. But there's no actual correlation between nose shape and greater DNA sharing with a gorilla or a chimpanzee. Exactly right. Yeah. So there's no actual data basis for different ethnicities of human being being any less human or something. Not at all. So we just have to acknowledge that that's going to happen and people are going to make naive connections and they will especially make naive connections when they have some ideological axe to grind or (laughs) they want to get some people to vote for them or buy their book or something, but there's no actual data for it. That's right. In your mind, is there any value difference between God creating humans in an instant and God creating humans through over time through natural selection? Let's just take an example of like humans are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Is there a difference between humans being instantaneously created in the Imago Dei or over time created in the Imago Dei? No, no. I I think, you know, the the way we interpret a person in front of us as to what qualities they have, it's very much a here and now. Like what what do I see in front of me and, and what, how do I value those? It doesn't really matter where they came from. Can we still call it creating? Do we, can we still say, yeah, I believe God created human beings, God created the universe, if it took place over so much time? I, I believe we can. Um, there's a number of reasons. There are a number of reasons for that. Most obviously, the common use of the word. And we talk about us creating things all the time out, mm. of, out of pre-existing material that we have some control over. We have a vision for what we want. We don't always get ex- create exactly what we have in mind. So, right. Well, yeah. you could say, did God create the mountains? And if you accept the age of the universe and the age of the earth, then you would say, well, yeah, he did. And he did it over millions and billions of years. And now we have a mountain. And the, we know we didn't have a mountain five billion years ago. We have a mountain now. We don't have the large glacier we had during the ice age. It's receded quite a bit. Did God create the glacier? Yeah, he created it. Slowly. After a big, giant moment of everything coming into existence, right? So it seems no different to say, yeah, the mountain came about that way. Humans came about that way. I, I have a difficulty finding a problem with saying that, that, that God deserves you know, credit for the whole thing. Because that's part and parcel of what you get to be if you're a God, right? You get, mm. <laughs> you get lumbered with the whole God thing. God gets credit no matter what. He gets credit yeah, no matter yeah. what. Um, and... That includes the the troublesome features as well as the good ones. It's funny. We probably should not go down this road, but I can't help it. I, this is, I always feel this way when I talk with Calvinists. I was saying, you know, God needs to be absolutely sovereign over everything I do in my salvation, whatever. And I'm just like, didn't he like make everything? Like, isn't that sovereign enough? Mm-hmm. You know, like you wouldn't exist without God. None of this would exist without God. For him to give you a little bit of free will, how does that... How is that a problem? Well, I, I put a fact, I think it's less than a, a problem. I, the, the, I think a creation that included capacity for, for free will is is a greater sovereign act, if, you, if you're allowed degrees of sovereignty. One question that Amy had is, if humans are just another kind of animal in some way, how do we account for our specialness? What is so special about us such that we can, for instance, be religious, be self-conscious, etc.? Yeah, I, I'm. I always have a hard time finding the need for some sort of categorical um, metaphysical difference. 
the between humans and between other humans and, and other animals. Um, and I think the features that we have are demonstrably diff- different from those in other animals. So to say that we're made of, you know, uh, the same atoms that that rocks and snakes are made of. To say that we have, you know, neuroanatomy, which is related related to others, it's a different um, a different question. Uh, so like, why why are we the same? Here are the here are the ways that we're the same. Why are we different? Here are the ways that we're different. Just not a, not an issue for you. I don't think so. And I, and I think the reason people want that is probably back to the sovereignty thing. The idea that, and of course, there's a, the Genesis accounting of, of human creation being distinct. Well, isn't one way of just saying that is human beings are the only self-conscious creatures that we're aware of in the universe. There might be others, but certainly on Earth, we are the only ones. And in that case, self-consciousness is a thing that God has, and we have it too. And in that sense, we're different. I mean, isn't that enough? I would say that's enough. I'm having a hard time. I, I know that's not enough for some people, but... <laughs> well, it'll have to do for today. Uh, another question Amy had. If evolution is going to produce sentience and self-consciousness like humans, why are we the only ones that have it? Why don't we see it elsewhere? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, we do see, of course, traces of proto consciousness in in our in other animals and of course our pets are we project some but the you know there's the intelligence we see in other creatures is is definitely objectively real a really interesting question is whether the universe would inevitably have brought forth creatures with our capacities and that's very much not settled correct that question no, because the numbers, the error bars are just too big. We just um, don't have enough information about other galaxies and whatever. No, um, but uh, I have, in the absence of a definitive answer, um, it seems straightforward to me that much like in the very early universe, there was just radiation. There weren't even particles. But uh, from what we understand about physics, when you cool that early universe and stretch it out a bit, the particles will form. So particles were in the future. They weren't there, but they mm. were there. Um, there. There was the potentiality for particles before there were particles. The, the, yeah, the, the chances of there not being particles are sort of zero. And you you can build that sort of argument out. You know, just go step, 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 step. Yeah, life, etc. There will be and and there will be carbon uh, that mm. that will happen eventually. Not initially, but eventually, second generation stars will give you carbon and this transition to life we need to from non-life from chemistry to proto-life we need to understand but assuming that that could be filled in seems to you why not just all the way up to self-consciousness yeah and there's there's there are many reasons to think that is the case and they are driven by physics by uh, the second law of thermodynamics there are just to touch on it really briefly what we see throughout history is that um, matter likes to dissipate. It likes to use up energy. But it is, that is a principle that, that, that think, self-consciousness and thinking is, is just the best way of burning through energy. I have also read that some people think um, the family of oct- that octopus is part of, that they have some of the elements of proto-consciousness, some tool using and some kinds of networking of communication, that given enough time, you could possibly have sentient and self-conscious octopi or whatever. Octopus would be a, a common ancestor for something in the future. Now, whether or not the, 
the seas remain clean enough for that to happen or whatever. But I mean, have you have you read that? Like, is that does that hold any water? Pun intended. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, uh, it's a it's a fine example because they are aliens. I mean, the, yeah, like the way they even their distributed nervous systems is, is just an example of how there are many ways to skin a cat. Is there disagreement among modern scientists about Darwin's original theory? She described it as, quote, not an accurate descriptor for the current theories of evolution. Is that right? Is is there disagreement now or is there disagreement just with what he originally put forward? Yeah, it's tricky, tricky without going into specifics to really address that. Um, uh, perhaps by analogy with Newton, we could we could get to that. The laws of motion that, that drive most of engineering were first articulated by Newton. And Newton was fundamentally wrong in numerous ways about all kinds of things. But that doesn't mean the broad concepts aren't good enough to still yeah. teach as, as, as right in principle. And the same thing is true of the book that Darwin wrote in 1859. You know, how many, how many of the books, how many contemporary books are we still sure. holding up? It's only going to get more complicated in the details, but the broad strokes of mutation, however that comes about, and, uh, and then selection, natural, uh, is, is going to stick with us. And that's basically universally accepted still. Yes. Yeah, it is. Here's a big one from my childhood, and and Amy mentioned this as well. What is the evidence for transitionary species, missing links, whatever, both in the larger animal world and in human origins? Because I was basically, I would now say I was propagandized into believing that there were no such species. And as I've read more recently, it's like, well, there are, my impression is that there are tons of them. Mm. And that's a, an area where I worry, was I being taught in, in bad faith? Was Were they ignoring evidence? Is that correct? Oh, um, well, there's every reason to believe you were not deceived consciously uh, because uh, there was a time uh, when we had precious few transitional forms. Okay. And it's not the case anymore. What's changed since then, since that time? Um, we'll pick any challenging lineage and... and you know, you let's go with, I remember whales were one. Yeah, let's go with no, whales I, and then let's talk about humans. We do have a, a rich understanding of the of the various branchings that happened to bring us contemporary whales because you know, they, they actually returned to the oceans. But the more the more compelling evidence, I think, is more is genetic where we have, if you were to be a god and going to be creating independent species, you could see yourself reusing ideas, broad mm. strategies. But the way that genes work as we understand them is a little bit messy. So it's not the way a programmer would do it. It looks like things have been randomized and, and bits and bits of bits from taken from here and there. And there are non-functioning parts of the genome, uh, which are occur um, in multiple species. Yeah. Talk about the one way I've heard them written about is genetic scars. They're yeah. like these little anomalies in in the genome that appear, lo and behold, in all of these species that we think share a common ancestor, and why would they show up everywhere? That would be a very odd thing for a god who was creating species fresh to include these bits. Well, the the analogy with with fossils is is very strong, um, and, and it, uh, this is another example of. So yeah, they are like genetic fossils um, in as much as they are buried, and uh, we can uncover them, and we. To have to deal with them, 
So how many, you know, just off the top of your head, how many specimens are there from, let's say, early hominids up to humans that people have found? How many specimens? Yeah, just how many individual specimens? Well, okay, individual is tricky because it's very rare to find a complete uh, fossil. But yeah, we're we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. it's... um, And now we understand, too, that Neanderthals are not a stage on the way to Homo sapien, but they were actually, they were cousins of ours. They were, we could interbreed with them or we could not. We We, we did. We There's... Most many of us have uh, Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, a couple percent or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a lot of evidence for these transitionary species, not just in the fossil record, which was highly emphasized in my Christian upbringing, but in the DNA record, it's much, much clearer. Even yes. And then, what do we know about currently existing microorganisms? That do we see those genetic? markers in them and us as well. It's clear that we go back at least to certain kinds of mammals or amphibians, but is it clear that we, from genetics, or is that too watered down? No, no, the genetic, yes. In terms of genetics, at least, we share, sharing is all over the place. Absolutely, across all lineages. Um, Now, is that kind of sharing, though, the kind of thing where you'd say, well, you have these hundred songs, they all have an A chord in them. Is it that kind of sharing, or is it like they all have the same little riff melody of six notes in a row? They have the same riff, and you have to wonder why that riff and not another riff that would have done just as well. When I interviewed Amy originally, this is one of the last things she said about how things would change if she did become convinced of biological evolution, including the common descent of humans and other primates. I know it wouldn't shatter my faith, but I think it would potentially just be something for me to reorganize my mind around as far as faith. But like I said, I try to have this posture already of understanding that my understanding is limited, and Mm -hmm. I try to be open to to learning more and to, and being open to science. I really think it's tragic that Christianity is often seen as being at odds with the scientific community because I think there's tremendous potential for, for them to, to come together in, in really compelling ways. It wouldn't have a zero impact, but I think the impact wouldn't be fundamental for me. It wouldn't be like, I don't know who God is anymore or anything like that. It would just be like, okay, my understanding of how man came to be and how God chose to create man. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make me no longer a creationist, I'd say. Yeah. Hmm. So now it's time to reconnect with Amy and see if anything in Adrian and I's conversation moved the needle for her at all on this question. We are back with Amy. Amy, thank you so much for doing both of these interviews and for listening to Adrian's response. For sure. Uh, My first question for you is just like, what was your overall reaction. A lot of it resonated. Like a lot of his story definitely resonated. It's hard to hear your own voice and how many times you say like and um, that was hard. <laughs> um, but and I, I edited some of them out. I bet you did. I bet you edited more than some. <laughs> we all have our crosses to bear, Amy. Yeah. I was like so surprised at how often I use those filler words. I edit my own out too. It should go yeah. without saying I do it a lot. Everybody oh, does yeah. it. You don't realize you do it. 
until you're on mic. Got it. That's good. To, that That's comforting to know. But yeah, I thought Adrian had a lot of really, his whole story about, um, you know, being a teenager and going to his friend's dad, who's a, he's incredible, like a career scientist. <laughs> he um, happens to be a freaking physicist or whatever right. he was. Yeah. Probably most of us can think of a moment like that where we had sort of a reckoning with not being as smart as we think we are. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and not being as informed as we think we are. And I, I thought of like several, I think not, I didn't have, I didn't have a moment with like a career physicist or anything like that, but <laughs> I totally resonated with that. I thought it was interesting. You guys spent a lot of time talking about like the actual age of the earth and universe and light and, and things like that. Cause I, and it made me realize that these questions that are scientific about the origins of the species and, and just the origins of our everything we know they're all kind of interconnected well the reason they're interconnected is because in the christian world the only reason to reject them is all the same reason right for sure it's like a certain view of scripture or a certain theological view that well the bible has to be x in order for the rest of this to be true Mm -hmm. and so in that sense they're all connected yeah yeah and i think it made sense that your conversation with him touched on all those things sort of how he views scripture how he views that graph about light and how far it's traveled right. and stuff which is i really want to see it sometime because it, it sounded really interesting i think he left it at my house i'll yeah. send you a picture overall like i think i came away with the sense of like oh yeah he's definitely studied and spent a lot of time in these subjects and i haven't which was a good realization i think it's just not it's not a topic that's really high on my priorities of diving sure. into more, but totally. it was cool to hear from somebody who has that slight more expertise. Well, and I didn't expect, nor do I think any listener expect you to be able to sort of be on his level. It's, it's right. his life's kind of work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he has more than a slight, a slight amount more expertise yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, more than I have as well. Yeah. So what was, do you want to start with the stuff that you liked? We could start with the stuff I liked. Like I said, his background and experience growing up with um, a lot of people that sort of had these fast and easy rebuttals and sort of mm. glossed over some things in order to make a really tidy picture. Yeah, and sort of betrays the fact that they're not dealing in good faith with it. I think they're probably very well-intentioned, and I can think of totally a large number of similar actors that I've encountered. That, yeah. yeah. And I think that Adrian was clear about that too. Yeah, he, he, he's he was, very good. I, I sometimes want him to like impugn people's intentions and he won't do it. Yeah. He, you know? he was very well balanced. I thought I resonated with that a ton. And I remember being, being like him and being very just eager and excited about that kind of stuff and, and being totally wowed by probably kind of slippery science. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. A bunch of those yeah. arguments that you know, come up in, in this conversation. Then I did another one with him about science in general. Mm. And, uh, so many of these talking points are, are just like, they're like smells that take you back to a certain place. Oh, yeah. You're like, you're like, Oh yeah. Canopy theory. I'm back oh, in my yeah. eighth grade Christian school science classroom. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally got reverted to being in like fourth grade at this church that we were at and like hearing some expert come and present about dinosaurs, I think. And I don't remember any details, yeah. but I just like, it was a memory I hadn't thought of in a yeah. really long time. So was there anything that you weren't that convinced by or that you found sort of, I don't know, less than winning? 
it's hard for me to describe because there's nothing that he said where I was like, that guy's off the rails at mm-hmm. all. Um, I completely respect where he's coming from and how well educated he is. I think like the conversation you guys had about, about sort of man needing to be unique, um, in creation and stuff yeah. like that still didn't fully, I think, address what I feel like my understanding of man is and, sure. and man's really special and unique relationship to God. And that, that could just be a difference of opinion, honestly. But or, I, or intuition of what counts as unique. Yeah. Right? I think I said in our first interview too, like if, if I've found irrefutable evidence that complete evolution is true, it wouldn't shatter my faith. And I think you guys touched on that too. Like from what I understand, Adrian just sort of sees it as like, this is how God created man. That's how he sees it. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting how you talked about the way we assign value is based on the here and now kind of, as opposed Hmm. to like how you came to be or where you're from. Um, I thought that was really interesting, but I, I do think that there is something unique about man and, and while there's evidence of consciousness and sentience and other animals, I, I don't think it's ever, I don't think I've seen evidence of anything to the level that, Right. That man hasn't maybe like I could see the counter argument being just like they're not there yet. But um So I think the understanding that I have and that I think Adrian shares is um the difference between man and other animals is this ability for uh not just consciousness but self consciousness, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I'm aware that I'm conscious, I have free will moral choices. Yeah. Animals can maybe be in God's presence in some meaningful way, but mm-hmm. they don't know that they are. They don't have yeah. the ability to not be. Yeah, exactly. We have that. And does, that's not enough. Is that not enough for you to be the kind of dividing line? Because to me, that seems like a pretty big difference. I think I think that is a dividing line. And I think I sort of was thinking about, for some reason, that part of the conversation reminded me of the C.S. Lewis space trilogy, kind of where he yeah. encounters aliens and all these other creatures that are part of God's kingdom. But there is still that uniqueness to man. I enjoyed thinking about it, but I think where I landed was that I still, I still do think that there that man was uniquely created in a way that that hmm. nothing else was. So I, I guess that well, okay. So what yeah. do you do? And yeah. I, I don't want to push too hard. <laughs> no, 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 you can't. But what do you do with like the DNA evidence then? Like, what do you think that that's just a is that a miracle? There are these scars. There are these markers that we share with like oh, yeast, yeah. and we share them with buffalo. And, yeah. You know, so what's that? I don't know. Um, yeah. And you don't and have I to think, know, of course. <laughs> I think like, I don't know why that's not more shattering to me. Maybe I just don't hmm. understand it. Yeah, I'm going to get enough. a text from you at like 3 a.m. Yeah. this I'm like, tomorrow oh my morning. gosh. Yeah, like I was reading about it on Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know how it all works. Can you imagine coming to a view that you don't have yet mm. where you end up going, okay, I don't disagree with Adrian on any of the science yeah. and, I, and yet I have also retained my belief in man's specialness. Totally. You can't imagine coming to that view. Yeah, okay. I can. So it's not like you have to reject what Adrian said in order to keep that. No, there, there was a lot there that was really good to think about. Um, and I, I think it's been rare for me to encounter someone like him that has been that studied in both science and theology. And why do you think that's rare? Um, I mean, I think it's just part of the narrative of evangelicalism. Um, and, and when he talked about like when he first encountered evolutionism in college and stuff, feeling like there was this sort of atheistic bent to it. Oh, totally. Um, Yeah. So I think that on both sides, there's a little bit of hostility. And so I think it's probably difficult to be a believing 
scientist and evolutionist. Basically, sociological reasons yeah. are why you haven't. Yeah, because yeah, I think it's probably hard from both camps to, to, to kind of walk in both of those worlds. It reminded me of being like the only non-atheist person in my Nietzsche class in college. <laughs> and like the first day of introductions, everyone was like, well, I'm an atheist, obviously. And obviously in this yeah. Nietzsche class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all like, I'm just here to learn about Nietzsche. I do really try to, to know how little I know. And probably from having experiences similar to what Adrian had, where as a younger, extremely zealous Christian, I felt like I knew a lot and accepted sort of incomplete, but very tidy and, and nice, yeah. nice to think about explanations and had later on sort of had some of those dismantled. And I think like, I, I really do believe that God's relationship with, with us is special. And to me, that feels tied in with creationism and, and he kind of touched on it too, like when he was talking about there being that link between chemistry and biology at some point, like mm. that seems to me, maybe it's naive and idealistic, but something there has to be somewhat mysterious and, mm. and hard to explain. And it, he said that they're getting really close to sort of identifying what it is. <laughs> Until but, they explain it. <laughs> but even, but even I think yeah. the explanations are kind of incredible. Like somewhere something had to come from nothing. And that's sort of the, yeah. the ultimate conundrum. Yeah. The I universe think. either has yeah. a purpose or it has none. Yeah. yeah. And, and what I kind of meant when we first talked about how like the mystery, the mysteriousness and the intricacy, like the detail and the things that we can know and the things that we don't know, they both are really exciting to me. So I think I remember like getting really excited reading about the Higgs boson particle and stuff yeah. like that too. And, right. and like none of that, um, like knowing how like the scientific explanations for things really has never dampened my faith or my, um, wonder at, at the fact that we're all here. Like, but did listening to all of this stuff with Adrian have any dampening effect? Did it have a enlivening, a sparking effect? Um, neither. I would, I would say it didn't dampen. I think there are things where he and I disagree. Yep. And after thinking about it more, like I'm fine with that. I don't disagree with him in the fact that I'm like hundred percent confident that he's wrong or anything like right, that. But you, you haven't seen enough evidence to, to this point in your life. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe if I study a lot, I'll get to the point where I'm like, yeah, he's a hundred percent right about everything. But mm. I think too, just science is also often based on assumptions and, and like hypotheses and then finding evidence for that, which I think makes total sense, but also is imperfect. Like it's well, easy to yeah. find evidence for, for stuff. If you want to be honest with yourself with scientific reasoning, all of your assurances are probabilistic. All of your knowledge is yeah. probabilistic and it's based on the weight of the evidence as far as you can tell yeah. right now. Yeah. Which is not at all to say that it's garbage at all. Right. Um, right. But I think it's really hard to not be like really closed handed about what you know on either side, whether that's junk science or legitimate science or theology. Yeah. Last question for you. Yeah. Did this make you want to, and do you think you will research more of this stuff after listening to him respond to you? Totally. Yeah. The, especially the stuff about genetics and DNA and like shared genes. Like, yeah, it's kind of crazy thinking about the fact that DNA like I think the human genome was sequenced in my lifetime. This stuff is happening really quickly and yep. recently. And so it definitely made me want to 
learn more. And like, there's all these stories coming out now about gene editing and stuff like that and the implications of all that. And so it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it's happening. Yeah. Like it, it's happened. And, um, I think that it was really a good experience, um, doing this interview and kind of learning about just how much I don't know about a subject. I, I knew I didn't that know a lot. That was not my intention. Yeah. Well, <laughs> meaning like I knew I didn't know a lot, but learning about how much I don't know and how I don't know it, I guess. Well, then you know what to look into. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Amy, thank you so much for your time and your generous spirit. Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. How about some final thoughts here, yeah? I'm confident that there are certain views of science and faith that are setting up, especially young Christians, for failure as they get into the real world and start learning more about the sciences. And I think that those views make the church and Christianity look stupid to people who actually know a lot about their issue, whatever their particular issue is. And that Augustine quote is helpful that I talked about with Adrian. Now, Again, I think it's okay to not be super well-versed on this stuff. Not everybody needs to be any kind of an expert, but we should not be teaching false dichotomies, either evolution or Christianity. It's just not true. So many talented and well-respected scientists are Christians. And the truth of science really does matter. Because anytime we learn something about the world, we learn something about God's creation. And if we have ways of learning that stuff, that is a gift from God to be able to learn about what God made. And we should not downplay that fact. If you want some more resources on this, there are links in the show notes to BioLogos. That's probably my favorite organization, and they have really great information organization. Also Adrian's organization, Counterbalance, there is a link. And I will also put a link to a couple books you might read if you prefer the book format. Also, there's a link to that Barna research that I mentioned at the beginning about young people leaving the church. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if you want to support this show, $5 a month, you have permissionpod.com. Click become a patron And you get access to two bonus episodes per month that don't go to anyone else. Thank you, guys. Email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. What topics would you like me to cover on this show? What topics or who would you like me to interview for those patron episodes? I want to be involved. I want to be in communication. Thank you so much for your time.